There are evil forces that are at work that are waging war against countries and against especially God's people and working in the hearts of unbelievers in order to craft the world system in which we are living. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 9 of our study of the Revelation, and we've begun looking at the second series of judgments that will befall the earth during the time known as the Tribulation. Following the seal judgments, we're now in the trumpet judgments, and having looked at the first five, today we move towards the sixth judgment beginning in verse 13. So let's join Dr. Brogy as he gives insight into this next cataclysm. Now today we're looking at trumpet number six. And so here we are in the second half of chapter nine. If you're using your outline, I want you to understand what this time on earth will be like when God asks his angel to blow the sixth trumpet. Three truths about this time are exposed for us. First, this is a time of demonic activity. It's a time of unparalleled demonic activity. We read now in verse 13, then the sixth angel sounded. Now you remember from chapter 8 and verse 6 that God had seven angels who held seven trumpets, each overseeing one of these judgments that caused silence in heaven for 30 minutes. Let me refresh your memory. Look at chapter 8 and verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, the Bible, as you know, describes different classification of angels. We've already seen in the fourth chapter the four living creatures that perfectly paralleled what Ezekiel calls cherubim in his prophecy. We looked at the seraphim when we looked at the vision of heaven that Isaiah was given in the sixth chapter. We've already spoken about Michael, the archangel, and John will write much more about him before we're finished. But it appears that these seven angels, notice it's articular, it's not just seven angels, but these seven angels in the article is used very sparingly in Greek by the Spirit of God to underscore a very important truth. These are seven high-ranking angels, and we're told that they stand before God. And it's a tense in the original that indicates they've been standing in His presence for a long time. It's the exact same verbiage that Gabriel gives when he appears to Mary, and he says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. It was the angel Gabriel, of course, who announced the birth of the Lamb of God. And now some other high-ranking angels are going to announce the terrible wrath of the Son of God. This is something that you are going to see. If you're a believer, you will have been caught up into heaven. You'll be part of this group that is absolutely stunned and silent for 30 minutes. And you will be watching... What we are reading today, our mouths will be silent as we watch. Perhaps Gabriel, perhaps Michael, perhaps five others. Some think there are seven archangels. Jewish tradition says that. Uh, We don't know for sure. There's only one named archangel. I know our hymn says highest archangels in glory, but there's only one for sure archangel. And maybe there's only one who's the counterpart of the evil one, Satan. I don't know. But these seven angels are not named. They're not termed archangels, but 
They are of great authority and they stand in God's presence. And they blow the trumpets. And we've seen in the Bible that trumpets, though used for music, are used in much greater ways than just as instruments of music. They are instruments of announcement. And so there are many reasons why God has trumpets blown in the Bible. Sometimes, as this slide shows, to call people to work or to call them from work because the Sabbath has begun. Sometimes to call them to worship. Sometimes as warning, trumpets of warning. And so the prophet speaks of the watchman on the wall and the trumpet that should have been blown. And then there are war trumpets in the Bible, calling them into battle and calling them out of battle. And by the way, the Romans, as underscored in 1 Corinthians 14, also had trumpets calling people into battle and calling people out of battle. We as Christians, we are also waiting for a trumpet. It's called the trumpet of God, the last trumpet. The Romans would blow the first trumpet. It had a distinct sound coming to battle. Then they would blow the last trumpet, distinctly different in tone, calling them out of battle. We today are in a war. We are living in this age, but one of these days, the last trumpet is going to be sounded and the church will be called out of this war and will be carried home into heaven. And so here in verse 13, we have one of the seven angels who stands before God ready to announce the sixth trumpet judgment. Look at it. Then the sixth angel sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Do you remember the golden altar? It was alluded to in chapters four and five and directly referenced earlier in chapter 8. It's very important. Go back to chapter 8 and verse 3. There we're told another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. Here's a picture of the golden altar. You say, how do you know it looks like that? Because God gave us a blueprint in his word. He details all of the furniture that was in the Old Testament tabernacle, that tent-like structure that was mobile, which on a few occasions is called a temple, but it's a mobile temple. But David, if you remember, he's living in a beautiful home, and he says, God's living in a tent. Let's build him a real house. And of course, God allows him to get the materials, but Solomon builds the first temple, the Solomonic temple. And this altar is right before the veil in both the tabernacle and later the temple, right before the veil that goes into that region called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is. And it was at the golden altar that they would burn incense, and the incense was symbolic of the prayers of God's people, of the priests ascending to God. We saw that imagery in chapter 5, verse 8. Let me read it to you. The 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp in golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Specifically, the golden bowls used at the golden altar were the prayers of the saints. And so incense is often symbolic of prayer in the Word of God. King David wrote in Psalm 141, May my prayer be counted as incense before you. Now, we've already seen, again, the golden altar and the brazen altar referenced in the Scripture. And we've seen those pictured up there in heaven. You say, what do you mean up in heaven? Well, I know uh, Charlton Heston, when he came down with the Ten Commandments under his arms, he had two tablets, but he should have also had a set of blueprints. 
Because when Moses came down the mountain, he not only had the Decalogue, the Big Ten, but he had the direct exact specifications for the tabernacle, which was later reproduced in the temple. The writer to the Hebrews, quoting Exodus 25, said, Moses was warned by God when he was about to wreck the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. The word pattern, or is the Greek word tupos, we get our word type. And so sometimes you will hear a pastor speak of a type. It's an important term. A type is an Old Testament picture or illustration of a New Testament reality. Abraham with Isaac on top of Mount Moriah, the same mountain Jesus died on, was a type of what Jesus was going to do when God gave His uniquely begotten Son. Now, if you remember the book of Hebrews, you had Jewish Christians who were trying to escape persecution. And so in order to escape persecution from their Jewish brethren, they went back to temple worship. And the writer of the Hebrews underscores, you're worshiping in a shadow. The reality is Christ. You're worshiping under a blueprint when you should be worshiping the one who's your high priest who is in the building itself. There was a movie years ago. I never saw it, but I heard it was pretty good, but about some lost ark, the lost ark of the covenant. And, uh, you know, they're looking for the ark. Well, I can tell you where the ark is. It's in heaven. Now, maybe it's under the Temple Mount, too. Some Jewish rabbis said they saw it there in the 1940s. I don't know, but there's a temple in heaven, and you're going to see it someday. And the one that was created on earth was just a shadow of the heavenly temple. And it's an important structure. We were in Israel on one trip, and we saw a tabernacle, I mean, built to the letter of the specifications in the Word of God. And I want to tell you, every piece of thread and color and piece of furniture pictured the work of Jesus Christ and what He would do. And so when we come to the 11th chapter, the 19th verse, we will read, then the temple of God was opened in heaven. And the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. So it's not by accident that verse 13 here in heaven is mentioning the golden altar. Look at 13 again of chapter 9. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Now remember, a voice from the four horns, because this voice is going to give an answer to the prayer that God's people who have been martyred during the tribulation, who are in heaven, we heard them crying out with a loud voice, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who are on the earth? And so now God is going to begin to give the answer, and He's going to unfold it over the next several chapters. Remember, when the eighth chapter spoke up, there was uh, uh, began, there was eight angels. There's a seven with the seven trumpets, but there was an eighth angel, another angel, who calls these seven angels holding their seven trumpets. Now we're going to hear the voice. Remember the chapter and verse divisions are artificial, added almost a thousand years after the Bible is completed, so you don't want to get distracted by that in this, in this particular frame. So at the end of 13, I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying, this is angel number eight from the beginning of chapter eight, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. God is sovereign. 
God is over all of His creation. And right now, there are four angels who are waiting at the great river Euphrates who are bound until God unleashes them. And the six angels will say, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And I want to tell you when that happens, I know it's a cliche where all hell breaks loose. All hell will literally break loose. Now, the great river Euphrates is a very prominent river in the Word of God. Of course, today, geographically, it divides the Near East from the Far East. The Euphrates River is termed by anthropologists as the cradle of human civilization. But biblically, here in the Revelation, it's the grave of human civilization. Of course, it was in the Garden of Eden that the river Euphrates flowed from. And it was near the Garden, near the uh, Euphrates River there in the Garden that Satan tempted and beguiled Adam and Eve, and it was there where the first murder took place. So we're first introduced to the Euphrates when Adam fell, and then when Abel is martyred by his brother Cain for preaching the gospel. And it was alongside, of course, the Euphrates River that Nimrod, who we studied in our series in Genesis, who is a type of the Antichrist, the very first human to seek through the Tower of Babel to build a world empire picturing the coming Antichrist. And of course, it was at the great river Euphrates where for 70 years when the people are carried off to Babylon, where there they find themselves. And we will learn before we're done with the revelation that the Antichrist will also have one of his headquarters at the great river Euphrates. But right now, in this particular scene, there are four powerful demons stationed and ready. And the four angels, verse 15, who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Now, a quick reading might cause you to think that these are God's holy angels because the text twice over in verses 18 and 20 remind us that they carry three plagues. But contextually... And theologically, these are not holy angels. We will see these are fallen angels. Holy angels are never, ever, ever bound in Scripture. Only fallen angels are bound. Now, I mentioned if you were here last time that there's a number of different categories of fallen angels. And we'll study this more when we come to the 12th chapter. There are some angels who are eternally bound in a place our Bible says hell. The Greek says Tartarus. It's a particular compartment of judgment. They are in eternal bonds, we are told in 2 Peter 2 and Jude verse 6. They committed a heinous sin. They left their natural domain and they cohabitated with women. And so God locked them up forever. They have no freedom whatsoever. Then in addition, as this chart shows, there are some angels that are temporarily bound in a place called the abyss. Remember when Jesus, there in Kersey, it's recorded in Matthew 8, Luke 8, I think Mark 5. He meets the two madmen of Gadara, uh, and uh, they are demon-possessed, and the head demon calls himself Legion because there's so many, and Jesus casts out 2,000 of those demons into the swine, and they run directly down into the Sea of Galilee. We're going to that place, Lord willing, in just a few months. But those demons beg Jesus not to be sent into the abyss because demons that are in the abyss, 
There are very evil demons, and they are locked up. Now, we saw in the eighth chapter, or the early part of the ninth chapter, that the abyss is going to be opened, and they're going to be released, and they're going to wage war. And so some demons are temporarily bound, and all evil is going to be unloosed when the pollen opens up the abyss during the time of the tribulation. Then there are some unrestricted fallen angels. We wage war, Paul said, not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, evil forces that are at work. There are evil forces that are at work that are waging war against countries and against especially God's people and working in the hearts of unbelievers in order to craft the world system in which we are living. Then there are territorially bound angels. And we have one example here this morning in Revelation 9. There are angels who are bound in a particular zone until God says, go. God allows them to go. And then in the end, all angels, as we will see, will end up in the place of eternal judgment. Satan is not in hell. He's never been there. There's not a single angel in hell. Now, there's a place called Hades. He's never been there either. Some people have this image of Satan with a pitchfork and he's down in hell. He's down there with his devil friend now. Satan's not in hell. None of his angels are, but they will be. It's coming. We'll study that later on. Don't get your theology from a cartoon. Get it from the Word of God, all right? So nonetheless, these four angels are territorially bound at the Euphrates River. And so there are demons who are very organized and who have territories. Even in Luke 8, those angels who are begging Jesus not to be sent into the abyss say, don't, don't let us leave this countryside. Why? Because that was their area. That was their zone. That's where they work and play and tempt and toil against man. Well, these angels are bound at the river Euphrates. In fact, uh, hold your finger here for a moment and turn to the book of Daniel. If you're new to the Bible, Daniel's not too hard to find. Find Psalms. It's in the Old Testament. Psalms is about dead center. And then if you will turn to the right, skim to the right, before too long, you will come to Daniel. And go to Daniel chapter 10. Jesus refers to Daniel as Daniel the prophet. Now, the critics in our day call him Daniel the historian. They say Daniel didn't even write the book of Daniel, that it was a second century A.D. work because the prophecies are so clear, so specific, so profound. They say it had to have been written after the fact because no one knows the future like that. Well, God knows the future, and he wrote through Daniel, and he recorded it to us. And so Jesus in Matthew 24 refers to him as Daniel the prophet, though I want to say a lot of the critics' arguments were dissolved when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Verse 11, chapter 10, he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I have spoken I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. So here's Daniel. He was sacrificially removing some of the food from his presence. He was seeking the Lord God for three weeks in prayer. Then verse 12, he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I've come in response to your words. So here he is humbling himself for three weeks before God. And of course, God immediately heard his prayer the moment it was uttered. Isaiah 65 says, 
It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are speaking, I will hear. Listen, your, your, your prayers travel at the speed of light even faster. Even before we can get them out of our mouths, God hears them. But it took three weeks for God to send the answer to his prayer. Now, understand there are different reasons given in the Word of God as to why we don't see immediate answers to prayer. Sometimes we ask with wrong motives. We ask amiss. And God allows time to transpire to show us how wrong we are in asking what we're asking for. Or sometimes God uses a natural means to accomplish His purpose, and it takes time for that natural means to unfold to bring the answer. Or sometimes... More often than not, we're not in proper relationship with God, and so He doesn't answer our prayer. We dump those verses out of context on the unbeliever that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. It doesn't have anything to do with the unbeliever, nor the Isaiah verse. It deals with the believer. It deals with God not answering the prayer of the believer. Now, it is true that all of the promises in the Word of God in reference to answered prayer are given to God's people and not unbelievers, but that doesn't mean God can't answer the prayer of an unbeliever. He answered the prayer of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 before he was saved, as Acts 11 underscores. So God can do whatever He wants, but He warns Christians and Old Testament saints, if I regard, some of your translations say, if I cherish, if I harbor, not if I sin, but if I cling to sin, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So there are different reasons as to why God doesn't immediately answer, but it's a good reminder that God's delays are not always His denials. But don't miss the reason given here in chapter 10. It's uniquely different. Now, follow closely. It's a fascinating text, and I don't know really of any other text in all the Bible that is quite like it. As soon as Daniel's prayer is uttered, God dispatches an angel, the word angelos, malik in Hebrew means a messenger, because of the nature of the answer God needs to give, he's going to send one of his personal representatives to give a clear, specific, detailed answer to his prophet. But on the way there, he gets into a war. Look at verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days, Then behold, Michael, you know him, the archangel, one of the chief princes, came to to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now, clearly the context is not dealing with human princes, but with angelic princes. Daniel had asked God for help, and God decided to answer directly by sending an angel. And on the way, the angel, he says, is intercepted by a fallen angel. And there's a war that goes on for 21 days. Now, verse 13 of this chapter teaches me that there was this conflict which pictures for you what we read about in Ephesians 6. There are angels at work in the invisible realm. There are holy angels here today. Our congregation is a lot bigger than you realize. Angels, when the church gather for worship, they come and observe us. And there are fallen angels that are waging war against us. But it's clear from the fact that no human could withstand someone like Michael, not for 21 seconds or 21 hours, much less 21 days. This is a battle that's going on in the angelic realm. 
You say, Pastor Carl, what do fallen angels do? They help run Satan's world. And this right now is, in one sense, Satan's world. When Satan tempts the Lord Jesus, you can read of it in Matthew 4, Luke 4, he said to him, all these things will I give to you if you fall down and worship me. And Christ never disputed that claim. He didn't say, well, the kingdoms of this world are not yours to give. They are. Adam lost it. And so we studied in the fifth chapter, Jesus was given the title deed. He's coming back to reclaim it. And a day will come when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And of course, we learned in chapter 5 that when the Father hands him that scroll, that that, that is what is going to initiate him capturing back what Adam lost. And so the Apostle John, like Jesus on three different occasions in John's gospel, he calls Satan the prince of this world. John writes in his first letter, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Equally, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, in whose case the God, small g, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. Right now, this world belongs to Satan, and he runs it through his demons, and they're organized. So we reference here the prince of Persia, and if you drop down to verse 20, there's another fallen prince, the prince of Greece. And I'm sure there's a prince here for the United States, maybe dozens that are at work that are working in leaders and tempting them and luring them. Just as demons work, you know, he doesn't, a demon doesn't have to directly attack you. He can attack some Hollywood producer to create some dirty, filthy movie that millions will watch. And so they work in so many creative ways. Look at verse 20. Then he said, do you understand why I came to you? I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm coming forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. This angel who brings Daniel the answer said, he'll be returning to fight the prince of Persia. What I'm wanting you to see is that holy angels and unholy angels are ranked and organized. Now go back to Revelation 9. That's an important theological framework that we need as we study this chapter. One of God's holy angels says, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And so first we notice that the demons for this future time frame in human history come from a distinct place. But notice also the demons come for a distinct purpose. They not only come from a distinct place bound at the river Euphrates, they come for a distinct purpose. Look now, if you will, at verse 15. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Now, again, most of Satan's angels are free to wage war in the heavenly places. Yet these four fallen angels have been bound probably for some extra evil that they have done, just like there are angels who are bound in the abyss. All angels are not equally evil, just like all humans are not equally evil in their expression. We're all fallen and lost and depraved in our nature, but that depravity can come out in an Adolf Hitler or in a little self-righteous school teacher who's never murdered anyone. Sin is sin is sin, but it can express itself in different ways, just as it does in the angelic realm. 
Tomorrow we'll conclude our look at the four fallen angels and the effects of the sixth trumpet judgment as we continue our study entitled The Time of the Filthy Four. Be sure to use our app for smartphones and tablets so you can listen again to today's study as well as any other of Dr. Brogy's messages. You can also visit our redesigned website at searchthescriptures.org or to order a CD or DVD copy, call us at 877-787-7478. Tomorrow, the conclusion of The Time of the Filthy Four. Join us then as we search the scriptures. <music>